And while you're heading there this morning, I want you to meet Gus. This is Gus. In a look at him, you can tell that he couldn't decide what color he wanted to be. But he is a horse. Would you agree with me he's a horse? He's kind of a horse of a different color, is he not? And we've come to the Gospel of John. Well, we just got prepared for it last week, I hope. And John is a little bit like that in that John is a gospel, but he's a different gospel, isn't he? The Gospel of John is unique. And as we thought about that last week, we were reminded of the fact that he's distinct from what we call the other three, starts with an S, we call them synoptics, remember that? While the focus of John is the same as the other three in that it's about what we just sang, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection. But we glanced at the fact that he's unique in the sense of some factors. One was the idea of timing, that John was written, guided by the Spirit of God, much later than the other Gospels with a purpose in that, to confirm and to even um, add to what the other Gospels are focusing upon and saying. Then we looked at content, and we saw how the very bulk of his material is unique to John, that over 90% of his material is distinct, though building upon the other synoptics. In fact, nigh unto two-thirds of the Gospel of John relates to the last week of the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. How unique is that? Likewise, he is distinct with reference to a stated purpose. Now, all the Gospels have a purpose of presenting Jesus Christ, but John conveys that to us, doesn't he? That you, may, that you might well turn with me to chapter 20 to just so if you've never underlined it in your Bible, you ought to do that, right? And if you don't underline your Bible, hand it in today, and we'll get you one <laughs> you can underline. John chapter 20. Maybe your Bible's all filled with notes in the columns and so forth. That's okay, isn't it? You can't do that with your phone, can you? Ha, ha, ha. John chapter 20, verse 30. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written, John tells us, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who he is, and that believing you may have, everybody say it, you may have what? You may have life in his name, stated clear, stated purpose of the gospel of John. And one of those key words in John is light and life and believing nearly a hundred times as this is called the gospel of belief. And then we just glanced for a moment at this son of Zebedee, James and John. James is one of the early martyrs of the church as far as the apostles were concerned. John's brother, John likewise, is one of the what we call the inner circle, James, Peter, and John, that had unique privilege with the Lord Jesus Christ, like the transfiguration. He's called the disciple, he says five times in his gospel, remember, that he is called by John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. What a wonderful thing to be able to say. And he was nicknamed, along with his brother James, Son of Thunder. Do you remember that? And as the Son of Thunder, there was this aspect of John where he was somewhat of a fiery character, and we saw a glance at that 
with reference to the time that the Samaritans didn't invite Jesus and the men into the community. And John and James said, should we call down thunder at this time and, and, and take care of them? And that, that zeal that was ordained by God in the life of the Apostle John was tempered and mellowed by being with Christ and Christ's impact upon his life. And he becomes likewise this, this, this zealous gospel, but who always, always loved the truth. And there is this uh, typical quote that comes from, uh, from the man uh, Polycart that was a disciple of John. And then later on, Irenaeus records a number of these things. And it was Irenaeus who records that statement. And this this is a, a, a painting that is depicting John coming, not going in. As he was going into the bathhouses there in Ephesus, he, he stopped and he is heading out. And he, we have that classic uh, comment that is recorded that John said, let us fly. In other words, let's get out of here. Even the bathhouse may fall upon us uh, because of Serinthus. The enemy of the truth is inside. And it just reminds us that John, maybe he mellowed, but he never lost his zeal for the truth. And may the same be done of you, be true of you and I. Can you say amen to that? And so that was characteristic of John's life, and those are just a glance at kind of an overview back to the beginning of the Gospel of John as to unique to his Gospel, but most profoundly unique and distinct about the Gospel of John is John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18 that we call the prologue of the Gospel of John. And perhaps if you've read the Gospel, and maybe you remember reading it for the first time, and you started there, and you went, whoa, this is different than the way Matthew starts with a genealogy, and, and, and Luke starts different, and John starts in a unique way in this prologue. And in verses 1 through 18, what John is asserting in these verses that we're going to just look at the beginning of today, he gives evidence of this in the rest of the gospel. And what is he asserting? He's asserting that we would know this so builds upon what Zach impressed upon us through the word this morning, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is God in flesh. And it is as if in verses 1 through 3, that John was taking like a systematic theology or Christology of 10 volumes. And he just takes those 10 volumes and he just squeezes them into three verses. In verses 1 through 3 about the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, we're going to see by some quotes, really in verse 1, he is declaring this particular truth about Jesus Christ that he begins his gospel with, and he ends his gospel with, and he's driving home in his gospel throughout the entire good news for us. So let's look at a couple of quotes about the beginning of the gospel, John, before we dive into the text. Kent Hughes declares that the simple sentence of verse 1, just verse 1, is the most compact and pulsating theological statement in all of the scriptures? If that be true, I really want to understand this verse. How about you? Amen? Of, in all of the scriptures, one of the most uh, compact and pulsating uh, statements 
R.C. Sproul, we had a good time listening to him yesterday concerning uh, the uh, series on Martin Luther and so forth. Thanks, guys, for making it on a cold morning. Uh, R.C. says this sentence, more than any other passage in the Scriptures, is foundational for the church's confession of the doctrine of the Trinity, the belief that God is one in three persons. And notice again, he says concerning this, as to any other scripture in the Bible. Passage, foundational for the church's confession of the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is one in nature, essence, beings, but he is three in persons. Everybody say it with me. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This verse, he's saying, is essential to our confession as believers. And we can't have a quote without John MacArthur. Amen? Right? And MacArthur says it his own way. The opening section of John's gospel expresses the most profound truth in the universe in the clearest terms. So John really unloads in verses 1 and in verses 1, 2, and 3, Lord willing, that we will, that we will get to this morning. So I'm going to say it this way from the onset. Please listen. If and when you and I have verses 1, 2, and 3, primarily 1, but all three of them fit together, if we have those verses right, then we'll be right about Jesus Christ and we will worship him. If we have any of the truth of one through three wrong or reject any aspect of one through three, then we are a heretic. We will be wrong about Jesus, we'll be wrong about God, we'll be wrong about the gospel, and then at that point, it doesn't matter about what you get right. Because if you miss the main thing, you're in real trouble. About God, about Christ, and about salvation. So if this be so, then why does John begin his gospel in this way? We'll get to the text in a moment. Why does he begin it this way? And it is for this reason. What he begins with is the very theme of the entire gospel. And that is that Jesus is the sovereign, eternal God incarnate. He starts where he ends. That most important question that we could ever ask, or anyone could ever ask us, or that we could tell them, who is this Jesus? Who is Jesus Christ? And that's why the Gospel of John, of the four Gospels, is the most theological in terms of its content. Or we could say it is Christological about Christ, but it is theological in content because of who the Lord Jesus Christ himself is. And there's a second main reason why he starts it this way and with these very important verses. And that is that from the time of the writing and record of the Synoptic Gospels, which are very early, Think of the 30s with reference to John being, being with the Lord Jesus Christ. Mid to late 50s, perhaps maybe early 60s of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then we get over into the early 90s of John's writing the Gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and the Revelation. Are you still with me? Okay. Then we're toward the end of the first century. And by the end of the first century... The church is attacked with reference to Christ. All kinds of wrong things written about him. Other gospels, other things that declare to be scripture that are not, and all kinds of wrong uh, assertions about Jesus Christ. And it should not 
surprise us because if we remember in the temptation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the attack by the God of this world, how does he begin more than once with reference to Christ? He says these words, if you are the Son of God. And when the religious leaders of of the Jewish people, the scribes and the Pharisees and so forth, with reference to their attack upon the Lord Jesus Christ and why he ought to be put to death because he has blasphemed, because he claims to be the Son of God. So John begins, and he's nailing it down one more time with reference to be sure you understand who this Christ is. And the more that we understand him, the more we are in wonder of him. And that's why one day when we are before the throne of God, the presence of God, I pray that's you this morning, there's going to be a new hymn that we're going to sing and it's going to go like this. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. And John's saying you better get that Lamb right with reference to his, to his person. Now, yes, you were wondering, is this a sign of the end time? When are we going to get to those verses? Here we are. Okay? So look at your Bible with me and notice how it begins. In the beginning, in fact, you can read the text with me, can't you? In, everybody read it with me. In the beginning was the, and the word was, and the word was God. And I'm going to pick it up in verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In, in verse 3, he's driving this particular already asserted truth. But now... And maybe you remember the first time you read the Gospel of John, and you read this, and the beginning is the Word, there it is, and then he mentions the Word again, and then he mentions the Word a third time. Later on, he comes to the Word again toward the end of this pro, uh, prologue, and you might wonder, at least ask yourself the question, why, why does he keep saying the Word? In fact, if we get to the end of the prologue, we realize the one he's talking about, Jesus Christ. Why doesn't he just say Jesus Christ here at this point? Rather, he says, the Word, the Word, the Word. And the Spirit of God is guiding the Apostle John to write this specifically because of the Word that he uses, or the term, the Greek term that he uses for Word in verse 1, and it is the term lagos. And the term lagos was something that caught the attention both of the Jewish reader at this time and definitely of the Greek a Gentile Greek culture of the world at this time, to hear that word likewise. He would have their full attention. Both Jew and Greek mind were familiar with the term or the concept, but not in the same way. In fact, we can kind of get a grasp of the idea of the word, its basic etymology by the idea, sometimes, have you ever said something like this to somebody? We talk about Tom this morning. We could say, what's the word? on Tom today. What are we saying? I want information. I want, I want you to express to me what, what the rest of the information is on time. Just the generic manner that we might say to somebody, what's the word on something? But what John is doing here in these verses is that he's not speaking of the word as a concept, though it was, but rather as a person. But to the Greek mind that loved philosophy, lagos, was the idea of reason or answer to everything. We could say it this way. It was the word on the ultimate answer to as a source of power or wisdom or, or origins. 
I don't know if you took philosophy or if you love for philosophy. If you do, talk to me afterwards so I can pray for you, okay? But I took philosophy, first-year theology, just to fill in one of my humanities when I was in college. And one of the first things that I heard was that the God of the Bible is some kind of a, a, a mere human um, identity there as man wrote the Bible, and, and so we've got an idea of what the ultimate uh, Lagos really is. And then the other thing that I began to hear a lot is that this, this idea, other than God, there's some idea, there's some force that's the answer to everything in the world, kind of like the cosmic idea. Of course, when we talk about our existence, we, the new God, with reference, not a new, but in the idea of where did it all come from, we've got evolution in place of God. Is that right? Amen? And, and direct contrast to the scriptures. William Hendrickson points out, the philosopher Philo used the term lagos over 1,300 times in his writing, but he never clearly defined its meanings. It, to, to the Greek, it was kind of like the force be with you. Everybody with me? I can't do that with my fingers, but you get the idea, amen? Just this ultimate cosmic idea behind it all. But to the, to the Jew... The Lagos was very clear to him, no doubt about it. It was the word is the word of the living God, the word of the Lord over 400 times in the Old Testament. We just could come back, bounce back to any one of the prophets toward the end of your Old Testament uh, canon here, and you will discover they all start with, and the word of the Lord came to this person, the word of the Lord came to that person. And so when they heard this concept of the Jewish mind, they were immediately thinking about God speaking, revealing himself. And that God being the source of all power, Genesis chapter 1, God said, let there be light, and there was light. By the word he spoke, and it came into being. They thought of the power of God as revealing himself, speaking and then they also thought about the fact that God's word, and we could see that particularly in the book of Proverbs, that the word, that the wisdom is personified oftentimes in the Proverbs, and it's pointing us to the very God of heaven. Psalm 33, 6 gives us this idea. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. There it is, that idea. Or Psalm 107, verse 20, he sent his word and he healed them. So with the Jewish mind, there was, no, there was no discussion about what he's talking about here. He's talking, when he says about Lagos, the source is about God himself. Now turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 19, and we can see how John nails that down likewise in chapter 19. So John, when he uses that term, that's what I'm trying to say, He's getting at everybody as the ultimate source and power and answer to all things. Chapter 19, beginning in verse, let's begin in verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. 
He's, his eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called, what? The Word of God. Now we're speaking particularly there with reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now back to the Gospel of John. So, as to no question about it, word representing in the Jewish mind, God himself and his power, Greek mind, the idea of the ultimate answer to everything. Then, in verses 1 through 3, he declares then this logos as the ultimate of reason and answer for profound wonders of the logos. And every time I say that now, I'm declaring four profound wonders of who? Jesus Christ. You can say it that way. Okay, if you're taking notes this morning in the bulletin, here we go. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. What is the first thing that he's telling us? Is that the Word, Jesus Christ, is eternal. Is eternal. This is Christology 101. Jesus Christ was was or already existed in the beginning. Notice what it says, in the beginning. Now when he says in the beginning, he's, he's taking us right back to where? Genesis 1, 1, isn't he? And so when the beginning began, this Lagos, Jesus Christ, was there. And this verb was, all the text here is very important. This verb was, the, the word was, in the beginning was, the word was Christ is what we call an imperfect tense. It conveys a continual action in the past. Here's the point. When the beginning began, Jesus already existed. Already existed. One thing for sure, he is not a created being right there. And much of the heresy that had already spread, spread up into the, into the first century was the idea that there was something highly exalted about this Jesus, but many were asserting he's not God. Already, he's already there at creation. If he existed before creation, then he is eternal. And his eternality is proof of his deity, for only God is eternal. Psalm 90, verse 2, From everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. That's what he's declaring right from the beginning. The word is eternal. We like to say it from the book of Hebrews, don't we? Jesus Christ is the same, everybody say it, he is the same yesterday and today and forever. Jesus is all existing from all eternity. Colossians 1.17, that just parallels with this chapter. And I believe in the providence of God, do you? And so my reading yesterday of just reading through chapter by chapter, was in Colossians chapter 1. And what an incredible connection Colossians chapter 1 has with John chapter 1. And one of the statements of Paul in Colossians 1 is he says, He, that is Jesus Christ, He is before all things. Eternality and deity. Now just stop with the wonder about this just for a moment. Just think with me about this for a moment and be filled with wonder. That Jesus, robed in flesh, born as a babe in Bethlehem. That Jesus, right there in Bethlehem, was the everlasting, preexistent Son of God 
who existed before the foundation of the world. Long before then. In fact, he not only existed long before then, but we're going to see he was active in his world that he created. This eternal one that was the baby, robed in flesh, is the one who began, when the beginning began, already existed. Secondly, he asserts in John 1.1, not only is the word eternal, but notice he says next, and the word was with God. Oh, wait a minute. He was there, but with God. So the word is distinct from God, is this point of the second phrase. So John is telling us. And the, the point here is not about timing, as the first phrase, when the beginning began, he already was there. But the point here is relational. The word is a separate entity from God. Now you recall R.C.'s statement about this being primary, this verse, to our belief of the Trinity. God is one, but has revealed himself in three persons. Notice we have that right away. Here's God. In the beginning was the Word, already existed, he's eternal, and the Word was with God, so distinct from him. And that little term, were with, is another key term in the second part of that verse. And it's the little Greek term, pros. And the idea, literally, of pros is the word was continually toward. And you say, well, what does that mean? I don't know. When I began to just trace this thing down, Homer Kent makes the statement, the word was as in the presence of God. Let me say it another way. You read more about this idea, pros, as used here in other places in the Bible. Many describe the meaning here as face-to-face. That's somewhat we could paraphrase the second part of verse 1, and the word was face-to-face with God. Now, now we're talking something beyond me. It's the idea of two people, meaning here as in the idea of face-to-face could be described as communion or fellowship intertrinitarian, that is, between the Father and between the Son and even between the Spirit of God. A perfect union fellowship that is taking place within the Trinity. One described this as perfect divine fellowship between the three members of the Trinity. Now, what was Paul talking about when he said in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sakes he became what? That he became poor. That you might, that you might experience his wealth through the Lord Jesus Christ. So in what sense did Jesus become poor? Well, we, immediately we go to what we call the Incarnation. But in the incarnation, there was something that was, careful with my wording here, there's an old saying, have you ever heard this, that fools rush in where angels dare to tread? Well, I want to be very careful what I say here, but there is something that has taken place when Jesus Christ came into this world in human form that relates to the previous intimacy 
in the Trinity. Turn with me to John chapter 17. A flavor of that there, if I can. John chapter 17. Why is this significant? Because Christ humbled himself to come into this world to take on flesh, to die for sinners like us. And coming, becoming human was not a bargain for Jesus. He was already enjoying all of the beautiful intimacy and fellowship of the Godhead from eternity past. But in John chapter 17, would you read verse 5 with me? Look there. John 17, verse 5. Jesus is praying, and what did he say? Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. A previous glory. Now he's in flesh. Now Jesus is with us. But there was a glory that was, can I say, enjoyed or experienced in the glorious perfection of Trinity fellowship. And Philippians 2, as you've already been there in our first hour study, points this out with reference to the surrender of Jesus in not feeling equality with God as a thing to be selfishly hung on to, but emptied himself and he took upon the form of a servant. So Homer Kent, I believe, says this the best when he makes the statement, the point of, back to chapter one, the point of that with reference to his coming to earth and what was, what was surrendered is that Jesus never laid aside his deity, but he did lay aside some of his glory in the incarnation. Never sacrificed his deity, never ceased to be God. But with reference to the Trinity, there was a, a, a surrendering of a perfect, perfect communion between God that is an infinite truth. And let me give you a very weak illustration. May I do that? Say amen if I may do that. A little while ago, we had our daughter from Brazil with us. Wanted to come be, be with mom, stay with mom, and be here a few days, and Stayed a little longer than originally, and it was just great to have her because there's times a year to, year at a time we don't see our daughter. But we still do Facebook. Praise God for Facebook. Not Facebook, FaceTime, right? Face, what? A little louder for Kevin. WhatsApp, but it provides FaceTime. So everybody say, Pastor was right. Everybody say that, please. Okay? Okay. But it's not the same as her being here. You with me? And for Christ, it was not the same as what he experienced previous to his becoming flesh. And that is significant because it wasn't for him, it was for us. For us. The word is distinct from God. If we're not careful there, then we begin to say other things. So then let's get to the next statement. Look at the text. In the beginning was the Word. The Word is eternal. And the Word was with God. The Word is identical in essence with God. But third, third, 
The word is identical in essence with God. The word is identical in essence with God. And I'm going to move ahead here a little bit with reference to that. How do you get that? And the word was with God, and the word was God. And the text presents this to us with theos before lagos. And so it's emphatic. God was and is the word. So any attack there upon his deity again is set aside by John in noting this is God, this one is God, distinct from him and yet same in essence, nature and being. And all of a sudden, you can be heretical so easily. Leon Morris says the high point is reached in the third affirmation. The word was God. Nothing higher could be said. All that may be said about God may fitly be said about the word. This statement should not be watered down. John is not merely saying that there is something divine about Jesus. No, no. John is asserting, affirming that he is God and doing so emphatically. We see from the word order in the Greek text, theos. Proslagos, emphatic he is. And so maybe then you've got this all figured out. You've got God all figured out completely. And you say, well, he is same in essence being as God. Then it must be something like, you know, like uh, one of the heretics of the end of the first century into the second century. His name was Sibelius. Sibelius. And Sibelius determined that the Lagos is not distinct person of the Godhead, but rather a manifestation of God. And so, so now you've got what's called modalism. That is just somehow that you have God, but sometimes God appears this way, and sometimes he appears this way, and it's not Jesus as a distinct person of the Trinity. You say, well, that's not a big deal. I'm here to tell you it is a big deal. Then he's less than God something other than God in the truest sense. Or perhaps you are in line with, uh, and I pray not, Charles Tate Russell. Maybe you're familiar with that name, maybe you're not. But he said, hey, what it really means is that the word Jesus is a God in the sense that he is a highly exalted, supernatural, created being. But not God. And so the Jehovah Witness New World uh, translation, New World Perversion, reads, and you know this, don't you? It reads this way, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and it reads this way, and the Word was a God. Less than God, but more than man. You now are a heretic when you hold to that. And if Jesus is less than what he is, he isn't the saving Christ that John is asserting, and the rest of the Bible is claiming the fact, and you are doomed, and my buddy, uh, well, J.C. Ryle isn't my buddy. <laughs> He's way before me, but I'm going to go right now to Doc Watson. In denying the central doctrine of Christianity that God became man so that he could offer himself as the ransom price for our redemption from sin, such cultists, though zealous and sincere, they are doomed. They are doomed. They are doomed then, and they are doomed today, if we get this one, the Lord Jesus Christ, wrong. 
The truth of Jesus Christ, deity in full equality with the Father, is a non-negotiable of the Christian faith. Perhaps that relates to Charles Wesley. And can it be, everybody with me, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love. How can it be that thou shouldst die for me? He got it right, didn't he? Christ is eternal. Christ is distinct from God. Christ is identical in essence with God. Infinite truth. And notice, back in verse 2, he drives his distinction again with us because he says he was in the beginning with God. And then third, this morning, or fourth, fourth, the word created, we are told, he created all things. He wasn't just before creation. He wasn't just observing creation. Jesus created. He created. Verse 3, all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And since he made all things, dear people, then he owns all things, and he owns you. Created. John knows the best way to drive home the sovereign deity of Jesus Christ to present him as the creator. Jesus wasn't part of creation. He wasn't merely present at creation. He did not initially start creation and then allow the rest to evolve. No, nothing came into being apart from him. All of it. All of it. Back to Kent Hughes for a moment. All the math people, I want you to turn your mind on here, okay? There are about 100 billion stars in the average galaxy. I don't know who's counted them, but do you? And there are at least 100 million galaxies in known space. Einstein believed, and he really believes now, that we have, if, when we scan with our largest telescopes, only 1 billion of the theoretical space, this means that there are probably something like, and go ahead and try, stars in space. How many is that? I don't know. I can't even say it. But I get to the end of a statement down at the bottom. So 10 octillion, our, our national debt will be there in a couple weeks. 10 octillions is a 10 with 27 zeros behind it. And Jesus made them all. And you and I. And you know what the psalmist says? The psalmist says he counts them, Psalm 147, verse 4, he counts the number of the stars. He gives names to all of them. And I still remember my dear teacher, Dr. Whitcomb, reminding us that when he gives names, he's talking personal, he's talking intimate, he's talking about the fact that he knows every deal, every detail of every one of them. He made them all, he knows them all, he knows every detail about every one of them, and is in line with what Zach was driving home, what a God we have. And John is telling us, Jesus wasn't just forever and aware there, Jesus was, and the best way that theologians stated is they say Jesus was the agency of creation. And that's the point, and I think I have it for us, that's the point that 
uh, Paul is making in Colossians chapter 1, just driving this home truth. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Now the hymn, you back up there, it's Jesus Christ. Whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things not only were created and owned by him, but they exist on the basis that he is alive forevermore. That's Christ. And if we were to take the time this morning, and I won't, but if we were to take the time and survey in the Scriptures, we would note how the Father and the Son and the Spirit were all three uniquely involved in creation. We catch that right away in Genesis 1 with reference to the Spirit. But Christ, in the sovereign wisdom of God, was the agent of creation itself. He did He did the work, if I can say it that way. And that's quite a feat, that work. I can't imagine anything greater than that unless we go to the cross. And there is the supreme work that Christ accomplished. And what he did on the cross as a substitute for sin, full payment, found in him, we were reminded this morning, it is finished. What was finished? Everything that the Father would ever require of a payment for the sin of people like you and I in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we put our faith in him alone, we can be forgiven. And more than forgiven, we can have the righteousness of Jesus Christ to our account in the account books of heaven and being at present robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. What a great truth it is. So, I had about 17 points of application this morning, but I like, um, I, I, I like a, a, a Pink's, Arthur Pink's application better, and he only has three. So can you say amen to that? But catch his application of all of this. Boy, those three verses, aren't they something? He says, number one, remember, the creator the Son is to be worshipped. The Son, S-O-N, never His creation. That's idolatry. Worship Him as the Son, Eternal Lord, Jesus Christ. Worship Him as God who took upon flesh. Worship Him as the one who came to die that you might live. Worthy is the Lamb. Never the creation. It simply reflects the wonder of the Creator. Second, He says this, God's moral attributes are incarnate in Jesus Christ. Now, what does he mean by that? Let me say it again. God's moral attributes are incarnate, incarnate in Jesus Christ. You ever have anybody say, or did you ever think, I wish I could see God? Just one person say yes, please. Say, I wish I could see God. Read the Gospels. You're looking at him, incarnate in Jesus Christ. This is God. And when you read about things Somebody asked me, or mentioned this morning with reference to the goodness of God, I think uh, Zach mentioned it, and rightly so. Spending a little time with uh, Anne-Marie, she said one of her things that she's holding on from the Scriptures is Nahum 1-7. The Lord is good and a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. Want to see God's goodness? Look at Christ and watch his goodness in what he does 
with people, and most of all, his goodness in the cross. His moral attributes of what we read about, even this morning in the Psalms, are in flesh in the person of Christ. And then number three, he reminds us, a fuller knowledge then of God is gained in learning more about Christ. I pray you have this morning. And that learning more of him creates a greater appreciation and worship of him. In John 14, 9, Jesus said, He who has seen me, what? Has seen the Father. So to take time in John and to see him in action as we're going to in the sign miracles that are recorded for us is to see God in action in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Learning more about God is to watch more about Christ and all that he is about. He is so worthy. Amen? Is he worthy to you as your Savior? Is he worthy to you in that you know him personally, having trusted in him as the hope of your eternal life and that you say this morning preacher i've heard a lot of times he died on a cross for sinners but can you say this morning i believe right now if god took me home this day i believe right now that he died on the cross for me for my sin and he is my savior and my hope is anchored in this one and this one is worthy of your trust and he's worthy of your worship every day of your life amen let's bow in prayer together please So together, Father, we express to you from our hearts how great thou art, how great is our Savior, who is distinct but equal in our minds, immediately are taxed with the wonder of it all. But see, that's how great you are, how great thou art. And I ask that his greatness will impact our hearts in a way that we remember who he is and what he's done and it will impact our words, our thoughts, our behavior, the manner in which we treat others and the burden of our hearts that others might know him because he is not merely the way, he is the truth and he is the life. And without this one who is the way, truth, and life, no man will come to the Father but through him. So we praise you for that truth. And if anyone today might be anchored in that truth in a way today that they never have before, to God then be all glory. In Christ's name.